Welcome to the Wandering Toward Wisdom podcast. We are back after a few months off and we're changing our format to be a little more, well, educational. Don't worry, we'll continue with our confusing and sometimes maybe erroneous commentary and reflections, but you'll find the podcast, we usually start with more of a lecture on a thinker or a topic, and then Joel and I and any other participant will chat afterward about the topic. In addition, we have changed our name, but only slightly. Since underscores are silly things and are hardly optimized for SEO, we are now simply wondering toward wisdom. Well, you might be wondering whether it's wondering or wondering. Well, it's wondering with an A. Uh, we thought either would work, but since Nietzsche warned never to trust a thought that comes to you while sitting down, perhaps wondering about with an A is better than merely wondering about with the no. If that was confusing, just wait till you listen to the rest of the podcast. In any case, Wondering Toward Wisdom, and that's Wondering with an A, is a part of the Tactical Faith Podcast Network. Our network is growing, too. We now have Wondering Toward Wisdom with me and Joel. We have TF Radio with Matt, who has great interviews with some brilliant people. And we have a new one with the musician, writer, and apologist Doug Powell called Tangible Truth. The first of that series is up with Doug discussing the Shroud of Turin with Dr. Gary Habermas. I strongly recommend you listen to it. Check out tacticalfaith.com for information and access to our podcasts, other resources on the site, information on events like the one we just had with Rod Dreer and Peter Lightheart, as well as ways to support us. Tactical Faith is an all-volunteer ministry that seeks to provoke people toward a wonder and passion for the truth, beauty, and goodness of the triune God. Now, in this episode, we are beginning a series on Nietzsche's book on the genealogy of morality. It is a penetrating and troubling work, even perhaps prophetic at points. In this episode, we only get a look at the preface of the book, but that's enough. It's brilliant and rich in itself. We'll move on to the three essays in following podcasts. If you have a question, comment, suggestion on what you'd like to hear, you can email us directly at wondering at tacticalfaith.com. Remember, that's wondering with an A. Thanks for listening. Oh, and by the way, most of our intros won't be this long, I promise. We have become rather accustomed these days to judging those of other times, and this probably isn't unusual really for any time, but we are we tend to judge those of the past and the future by the morality that we believe everyone should hold, and we believe this so strongly that it can almost be unconceivable that any right-thinking person could hold a different view. Thus, why it is so easy for us to demonize and condemn others for the immoral things they did and believed, even back in other times. But what if we flipped things around a bit and allowed someone from another time to judge us? Could there be any benefit from this? And what might they say? After all, despite that odd phrase about being, quote, on the right side of history, we haven't had anyone from the future come to judge us or tell us which side of history is the correct one. Nor did those who came before know what we would be like, at least not with any certainty. The study of history and the thoughts of those who came before us, though it is not often a judgment, after all, they didn't know what we'd be like, nevertheless, can help us to see ourselves from outside of our own time, place, culture, and so on. This is why the condemnation and writing off of entire segments of history based on some negative judgment is not merely an intellectual loss, but a loss of wisdom, of self-knowledge, and perhaps even of morality. Of course, this does not mean that those who came before were perfect or even good. It just means that being trapped in a narrow range of ideas is bad for us, even, or maybe even especially, if that entrapment is garbed in the trappings of high-minded moralizing. Now, though those who came before did not know us in particular, it's very likely that some of them had a pretty good grasp of humanity in general, and thus can offer great insight. 
or perhaps just as good, perhaps they committed some important error that we can learn from, or perhaps in reading their errors, we can recognize that we are doing the same. Today, we're going to begin a short series on a book that I think is particularly insightful, even if it contains errors and was written by a man whom we might find rather morally distasteful, or at least some of his views as bad. Despite your negative judgment of the author, this book is, I think, almost prophetic in its recognition of the disease of our age. But you can judge whether I'm right about this or not. The book is On the Genealogy of Morality, and the author is Friedrich Nietzsche. Nietzsche is one of the most famous philosophers in history, and surely the most famous atheist philosopher. He wrote The Genealogy of Morality fairly late in a short but prolific career, and so it is arguably what we might call a reflection of his mature thought. If you've ever read Nietzsche, you've probably found him a bit difficult to follow, especially if you've tried out Thus Spoke Zarathustra or any of those kinds of late writings. His writing is aphoristic, with, a, with rarely a clear line of reasoning that goes from section to section. And he seems to be unconcerned often with the, making even the argument for an individual section completely clear. But he wrote his genealogy of morality a little bit differently. In terms of his later works, it is perhaps the book with the clearest progression of argumentation, which does in fact move from section to section. It's, it still reads like his other works, somewhat aphorist, aphoristically with perhaps more provocation than argumentation, but nevertheless, you can follow his line of thinking from beginning to end. Now, what is the genealogy about? Well, it's in the name. Nietzsche is looking for the ancestry of morality, particularly the morality that had become at his time unquestionable. This endeavor was not unusual during his day. While many throughout history had written works attempting to clarify morality or explain it, by Nietzsche's day, there were two new ideas that had given impetus to discover the origin of morality. The first was, of course, Darwinism, and in general, the belief that came with science and was spreading among those who considered themselves educated that we no longer needed God to explain things. Science was the attempt to explain things naturally, without reference to the supernatural. And science was doing quite well, even in those days. In fact, the theory of evolution had provided a huge step, perhaps the last step, to explaining the world in a way that required no God. The diversity and complexity of life was so incredible that it was reasonable to believe that there was an intelligent force behind creation. But evolution rid us of that need. While Darwinian evolution was spreading, so too were ethical theories that culminated, we might say, in utilitarianism. Thinkers such as John Stuart Mill and Jeremy Bentham had proposed utilitarianism, a view that something is good insofar as it creates the greatest happiness for the greatest number, and something is bad or evil insofar as far as it does the opposite. Utilitarianism offered a kind of naturalistic explanation of morality itself, without any need for a transcendent source of morality. If you've ever been troubled by, say, the Euthyphro Dilemma, or any other possible critique of morality being derived from the divine will, then utilitarianism did for morality what Darwinian evolution did for biology. It removed any need for the divine or the transcendent. And evolution as a source of our biology, intellect, and morality worked quite well with utilitarianism. Natural selection would, of course, select those who are most fit for life as an animal that can only survive in herds, for we humans are indeed only able to live when gathered into groups. So morality is the evolutionary programming of the need to live together in relationships that are relatively trustworthy and mutually beneficial. With natural law handling the world of physics, Darwinian evolution handling the world of biology, and utilitarianism offering an explanation of morality, we had made God an unnecessary hypothesis. Thus, Nietzsche's madman, as well as his Zarathustra, 
announced that God is dead, meaning, most importantly, that we had lost our dependence on God as a part of our beliefs. When we no longer needed God for our understanding of the world and life, then we found ourselves unable to believe, and thus God had died. Given that Nietzsche is perhaps one of the more famous atheist thinkers in history, you might think that he'd see the culmination of utilitarianism, evolution, and science more broadly as an opportunity to simply enjoy the spoils of success over what he saw as a destructive and backward religious superstition. But if you thought that, you'd be wrong. Nietzsche offered no rejoicing, nor did he encourage hopefulness now that atheism was on the rise. Instead, he criticized, warned, even mocked, well, mocked pretty much everyone. He announces that neither the religious nor the enlightened non-religious really knew what they had done, where they were, and what was coming. During the heightened optimism of the late 19th century, Nietzsche stood almost alone as a kind of prophetic voice, warning of terrible things to come. It didn't take long into the 20th century for people to realize that Nietzsche was prescient. And that is a part of our focus here, to spend some time looking through his genealogy morality and to consider whether he does indeed understand humanity better than most of us recognize. And perhaps that's where his prescience came from. We will soon see Nietzsche's criticism of utilitarianism and any apparent evolutionary grounds for modern morality, which he details in the first of the three essays, to make up the book. But first, let's consider the preface, which is probably too rich for him to have designated merely a preface. Nevertheless, I want to note just two points from the preface. The first thing that Nietzsche makes clear in that intro is that he thinks that philosophers and thinkers more broadly were failing to understand themselves. That is, the vocation that was arguably grounded in the ancient call to know thyself had resulted in everyone being so busy with knowing things that they never quite had the time to pay attention to themselves. The first lines of the genealogy state rather starkly, We are unknown to ourselves, we knowers, and with good reason. We have never looked for ourselves. This criticism that we have not been paying enough attention to ourselves lies beneath the claims of the entire book. Nietzsche believes that all of our attempts to understand morality are confused and at least partly in error, though quite badly so, because we at best are simply distracted with other things, and at worst, we are actively deceiving ourselves about ourselves. Nietzsche's goal is to dig deeper, to pay better attention to ourselves, and so gather more clearly the origin of morality in humans. The second important element from the preface is what moved Nietzsche to carry out this project. He had recognized that there is a shift in the modern moral sentiments, that while many of the earlier thinkers, from the ancients to even some of the thinkers of the recent past, had had a low view of of compassion, the modern morality had elevated compassion. The German word for compassion is mitleid, which can be translated quite literally as suffering with. To have compassion is to suffer with someone who is suffering. Nietzsche wondered why such an apparently debilitating passion was given such honor. After all, isn't compassion merely the spreading of suffering? Doesn't it spread weakness? We see compassion as one of the highest and most noble of moral sentiments, but Nietzsche asks, what if the opposite were true? What if a regressive trait lurked in the good man, likewise a danger, an enticement, a poison, a narcotic, so that the present lived at the expense of the future? Perhaps in more comfort and less danger, but also in a smaller-minded, meaner manner, so that morality itself were to blame if man, as species, never reached his highest potential and splendor, so that morality itself was the danger of dangers. 
And when we consider this latter question, what is the value of compassion? And really, what is the value of morality more generally? It might be easy to come up with an answer. It helps us flourish as a species. In much the same way, Mill once argued that something is desirable only if someone desires it, and since all people desire to be happy, happiness is therefore desirable for all. But such an argument is nonsense because it rests on a confusion about value. It may be valuable for all that all receive happiness, but this does not mean that it is valuable for any particular person that all be happy. So too, we might believe that evolution has given us a moral code that we might flourish as a species, but concern for the species as a whole has never been of interest to anyone. How could such a trait be worked in as a dominant strong trait within humans who have always been at war? We've always been stealing, killing, and destroying those of the same species. Is not violation of others the very ground of life according to a materialistic evolutionary perspective? Isn't that how natural selection works? And if so, how did something like compassion arise within us? What is the ancestry of our morality? What is its genealogy? Now, perhaps we are so enamored with our time, so arrogant in our superiority over all those who came before and who have different moral sentiments than us, that we are incapable of really seeing ourselves. Perhaps we cannot even see what compassion is or where the ground of our morality lies. Of course, we might also be right to have compassion and even have good reason for this kind of morality. Whether we are right or wrong, battling our way through the pages of Nietzsche's genealogy of morality can help us at least be clearer about ourselves. Now that we have that good summary, good uh, laying this, the, the groundwork for, for this work from Nietzsche, before we start discussing what Nietzsche says, I find when I'm uh, reading philosophers, especially ones that are from a different era of where I, I presently am, if I can understand their biography, understand some formative events in their lives, uh, understand the culture that they were speaking to, um, some of those kinds of things, that when I read the the work, when I engage with the work, it's easier for me to capture what the philosopher was actually probably saying rather than just a surface level reading or even a, a deeper than surface level reading, but a reading that misses the point when if you don't understand those elements of it. So can you give us just a, a brief uh, overview of Nietzsche's life, where he grew up, some formative events, the culture he was responding to, those kinds of things that, that can help us to understand why Nietzsche places the emphases on the things that he places the emphases on in this and throughout his work. Yeah, I think there's uh, a couple important things uh, to note, particularly about the culture he grew up in, the time he grew up in, and really his area of study as well as, as some events. So uh, he was born in 1844 in October, which is the month when all good people are born. And uh, he was born in a place called Ruckin, or I like to say Rockin. Uh, and he was, he was a son of a pastor, uh, a Lutheran pastor. Now, his father died when he was, when Nietzsche was still four years old. Uh, and shortly after that, his, uh, his brother died as well. Uh, and Nietzsche was left with his sister, Elizabeth, with whom he was close though he had a bit of a rocky relationship uh, for, for a time, and his mother, 
And he ended up, you know, he ended up going to school. He was a gifted student. Uh, he seemed to have a passionate relationship for Christ- with God, you might say, or with Christianity when he was young. If you read some of his letters or some of his notebook entries, they're very, um, they're prayers that sound like he just came from a youth conference. But he ended up go- going to going to university, and when he did, he studied philology. And philology is the study; it literally means the love of words. But it really was a study of ancient texts, and in in Germany at the time, or I should say Prussia at the time, he was uh, the the culture of the Germans. They believed themselves to be the heirs to the culture of ancient Greece, and they believed ancient Greece, uh, particularly the time around around the time of Socrates, uh, when you had these these famous uh, tragedians and comic uh, poets, uh, you know, Aeschylus and Sophocles, uh, uh, Euripides, and uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, Aristophanes, the comic poet, uh, who shows up in Plato's Symposium and so forth. Uh, but these, they considered that to be the high point of human cultural development was, was, that was found in Greece. And, and the Germans were the heirs of that. They were, they saw, and in fact, you see some or proto-Nazi elements in here with this kind of, this belief that the Germans were the heirs to the, to the Greeks and the Greeks were the high point, the ancient Greeks were the high point of, of human culture. And so therefore the Germans, you know, that tells you what you need to know about the Germans. And so Nietzsche, Nietzsche, you know, philology was a big deal because studying the ancient Greek text was really, really important. And so, and he did, he did extremely well. He was, uh, he took a chaired position. He's still the youngest person to ever have the chaired position uh, at the University of Basel. He got that even before he had finished his, his work on his doctorate, which is incredible as well. During this time, you know, he, he got the chaired position and he, and his, his lectures that, that he gave both public lectures and university lectures, people loved them, so on and so forth. But then he ended up publishing a book. And this was the, this was a turning point in his life, uh, for the for good or ill. It was a it was a dramatic turning point in his life. Uh, prior to the publication of this book, which is called The Birth of Tragedy, uh, which is a good book in a lot of ways and a terrible book in some other ways. Prior to that, he'd become friends with 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 Richard Wagner, uh, whom you probably have heard of. Uh, he was a a very successful uh, composer. He was also a jerk, and he. Uh, in some ways, Wagner had become like a father to Nietzsche, and Wagner uh, was married to his, I think, a second or third wife. I'm not sure. I'm not, he went through many, but it was his last wife as well, Cosima Wagner, who, by the way, was the former wife of someone who funded Wagner's work. So that shows <laughs> how good of a guy, how good of a guy Wagner is. And so, and I think the guy kept being a patron even after Wagner took his wife. So, you know, these people are weird. But Cosimo was much younger than, than, than Richard Wagner. And Nietzsche sort of fell in love with Cosimo. In fact, there's hints that, I mean, even after he, he lost his mind and uh, is kind of jumping ahead in 1889, he was writing letters to her and referring to her in, in ways that are romantic and affectionate. Uh, but Wagner was like a father. Nietzsche loved music. He himself was a bit of a composer, though. There's mixed reviews on whether he was any good. Most reviews say he wasn't. And Wagner let Nietzsche know that he wasn't any good because Wagner was a jerk. But when so when Nietzsche published this book, The Birth of Tragedy, out of the spirit of music, it's a it's actually a fascinating work, and the work sets the tone for his entire 
I, I, I believe it sets the tone for his philosophy, uh, all the philosophical work that he'll be doing. The book was an absolute disaster. Uh, and it wasn't a disaster because people came out and criticized it. Because if you're getting criticism, that means people are paying attention. It was a disaster because there were nothing but crick, crickets and tumbleweeds after he published his book. There was no response whatsoever. And poorly written music by Nietzsche. <laughs> and, and some poorly written music by Nietzsche, which Wagner let him know about. And so uh, now after a while, eventually a criticism came out and it was just withering. And if you read The Birth of Tragedy, it's a little bit of it's an odd book. But it's it's fascinating in a lot of ways. But then when you and you know it's kind of interesting. Then you get toward the end, and it's suddenly this huge praise of Wagner and how Wagner is going to save civilization with his music and all. And you're like, shut up! And so and Nietzsche is going to come to regret that later on. As time goes on, Nietzsche ends up breaking his relationship with Wagner. He ends up losing he ends up losing the capacity to teach after he published his book. Like people stopped showing up to his class, people stopped showing up to his lectures. He was disliked very much. It almost destroyed his his career. And there's a, a number of things that happened during this time, and I'm going to kind of run through this quickly, but he became disillusioned with Wagner because he realized Wagner isn't transforming anything. He's just paying, paying homage to the status quo with his stuff. And so Nietzsche ended up breaking with him, um, started writing, uh, started writing extensively here, and his writing... Uh, starts to change pretty dramatically from the birth of tragedy. He publishes Untimely Meditations, which are four works, uh, very interesting works. Starts writing Human All to Human. By the time he publishes Human All to Human, he had ended his friendship with Wagner completely. He wrote he wrote a variety of other books, Daybreak, The Gay Science, and so on and so forth. So he become became friends with some other people, Paul Ray, who he mentions in the preface of The Genealogy of Morality. Uh, Paul Ray had written a book called The Origin of the Moral Sentiments, and Nietzsche criticizes him. <laughs> Pretty, pretty nastily in the book. And it, they were really good friends, but Paul Ray had sort of betrayed Nietzsche with a woman that Nietzsche had fallen in love with, uh, which I should mention really quickly. There's something interesting about Nietzsche. I, I got to throw this as sort of an apology for Nietzsche, an apologetic argument for Nietzsche. Nietzsche is known as sort of a, a hater of women, as a misogynist. And if you read some of his books, you're like, yeah, Nietzsche is a misogynist. But what's interesting is he had he had at least twice where he asked a woman to marry him, or he tried to. Uh, and one of them is this woman, this fascinating woman, Lou Salome, who is friends with a lot of people. I believe she knew Freud. Uh, she was friends with Paul Ray and Nietzsche, and they'd become a. Uh, they wanted to. They wanted to actually move in together and start what's called a monastery of free spirit, free spirits. Um, I don't know if there was any any. They weren't planning on anything untoward, as far as far as I know. There's a famous picture of. Maybe you've seen it of Nietzsche, where Nietzsche and another man are pulling a cart. Uh, like, you know, beasts of burden, and there's a woman with a whip behind him. That's Nietzsche, Paul Ray, and Lou Salome. <laughs> and so they're, they're, uh, f- it, that's kind of that's kind of fun. Anyway, Nietzsche had asked Paul Ray, because Nietzsche was off somewhere, Nietzsche, Nietzsche had a lot of sickness. He had asked Paul Ray to ask Lou Salome to marry Nietzsche, which is just, it's, it's just a stupid way to do things, but apparently that wasn't unusual. And uh, Lou Salome was a she was what you might call a full-fledged feminist. She was, she did not act like she was very, for, for that time. So she was, she was very interested in learning. She traveled, she was widely traveled. When she finally did marry someone, she said, I'll marry you, but it must be a celibate marriage because a kid will destroy my life. I don't want to get pregnant. And, you know, they didn't have a lot of the things that we have now to deal with that sort of thing. Well, Paul Ray 
I believe he actually asked Lou Salome to marry him rather than Nietzsche. This kind of ended their friendship, as you can, as you might imagine. Uh, this caused some distress. So if you think about it, the, 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 you, you look at Nietzsche's life. I need to bring up one more thing. He had asked one other woman to marry him, by the way. And this was a woman who interrupted some men to add in some of her own ideas, which was completely improper for a woman in those days. A woman who was, was meant to be quiet. You've probably seen Mad Men. Uh, it was sort of like that, but maybe worse. A woman's job was to be quiet and listen, never to interrupt and never to give her opinion unless her husband, I don't know, give, gives the okay. This woman interrupted Nietzsche and his friends as they were talking and added her own opinion. The next day, Nietzsche asked her to marry him. So I'm not sure Nietzsche hated women. He hated that women had become what the culture had deter- had called them to be. So, but that's sort that's sort of an aside. But this this actually manifests a little bit of what Nietzsche's interested in terms of interested in in terms of his morality. He likes strength. He doesn't like that which magnifies and and relishes weakness. He doesn't like that. Nietzsche had a problem with relationships. He had when he had friends, they were really, really good friends. But his probably the people that he that that had the greatest impact on him, or the events with relationships that had the greatest impact on him, was the loss of his father and brother when he was young, and then kind of Wagner kind of came, became a stand-in father for him, and then he lost Wagner. He lived with his mother and his and his sister and his sister Elizabeth. Uh, he was very, very close with her, but then she married this kind of proto-Nazi sort of whatever guy. And they, they moved down to, uh, South America to start a, you know, a sort of a proto-Nazi pure colony. And Nietzsche, upon hearing about this marriage, broke off his relationship with Elizabeth. He said, I can't, that guy's a scuzz bag and I can't have anything to do with you if you're, if you're married to him. And, uh, which is curious because that man ended up dying. And after Nietzsche lost his mind, Elizabeth sort of, uh, twisted the arm of Nietzsche's mother to get control of Nietzsche and his and his library and she proceeded to select the publication of his works in such a way that would make it more friendly to Nazis because if you read Nietzsche extensively you realize he thought German nationalism was idiocy in any case so Nietzsche had lost his relationship with his father because he died he lost his brother when he died he had lost his relationship with Wagner he had lost his relationship with Paul Ray and Lou Salome uh, the other woman, by the way, said no as well. And he had lost his relationship with his sister. He was a very lonely man in a lot of a lot of respects. In fact, he spent a lot of his time alone. He was also very sick. In fact, he eventually had to step down from his position teaching because he had such bad migraines and a variety of other illnesses. I think it might have been related to, to his insanity might have been related to him uh, contracting syphilis, though it's it's unclear. It's unclear, I think. He had uh, serious health issues and so on and so forth. But through all this, he he was writing and reading prolifically, even though these migraines would knock him out for days. And they would be brought on partly because he had such bad eyesight that he had to have to stick his face on the page to read and write. And so he was exacerbating the problems. And he was lonely. So he was in pain. In every element of his life, you might say that he had failed. And he was suffering physically. Through all of that, he wrote all, all of this work. And so his view on ethics, his view on morality comes from the place of someone who, without any accolades, without any support from the external world, was producing some of the most important philosophy of the last couple of centuries. But nobody really cared. 
he was kind of on his own. I mean, he was living off of off of a stipend he was getting for having been the chair of philology at Basel in the University of Basel. But there's a couple interesting things here that are important for for the work here that I just, I just want to note. Uh, for I've already mentioned the pain and the overcoming and all this other kind of stuff, and the kind of solitary strength that he that he exhibited. You might say solitary strength. You might say he was crazy, and he actually did end up going crazy. In fact, some of his eventual going crazy kind of leaked into his some of his later works, um, like the Antichrist when when he wrote that one. There's some stuff in there that doesn't sound much like Nietzsche. It sounds like he'd lost it. But one of the other elements is his study of the ancient, of ancient Greek culture, and uh, that 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 introduced him to an entirely different way of looking at morality than what we have now. There there are arguments that he that Nietzsche was not against morality. What he was in fact what what you could call him is a uh, something like a Homeric virtue ethicist. That is, he held to the Homeric virtues rather than the contemporary virtues. And the Homeric virtues did not include things like compassion and and so on and so forth. It was all based on courage and strength and so on and so forth. But we're going to have to get to that when we get later in the work. But given that, given his pursuit of that and his, and his reflection on that, and in fact, his passage through Schopenhauer and sort of the, the semi-Buddhism of, of Schopenhauer and so on and so forth, uh, that being enamored with that and drawing back from it, all of that feeds into his into his understanding of morality. And it perhaps helped give him a clear, uh, maybe I shouldn't say clear, gave him a way of evaluating contemporary morality that a lot of us might not be familiar with. So that was an entirely brief, I'll just make a quick note. His writing career began in, he published his first book in 1872. That was a disastrous book, The Birth of Tragedy. He published his last work, um, uh, he, he wrote through 1888, and by 1889, the 3rd of January, 1889, he broke down, and he had moments of lucidity um, after that, but for really the rest of his life, he died in 1900, the rest of his life, he was largely insane. And so he had a writing, he had a, a writing career of about 16 years, and he wrote a lot and is tremendously influ- influential. So that's a that's a brief overview. So just a, a couple things I I wanted want to kind of point out is especially among Christians Nietzsche has a really bad rap. I mean he's he's the guy who said God is dead. He's the guy who wants to destroy Christianity and all these things. But I think our listeners, as they listen to that biography, they realize that Nietzsche is not this horrible human being who's out to destroy Christianity that, that he's often uh, caricatured to be. Um, there was a lot of pain, a lot of suffering in his life, um, a lot of failure, a lot of loneliness that I think when we listen to some of his ideas, we, we have to keep that in mind as he's, as he says the things that he says. He's, he's a very sharp man, a very critical man, but he's not necessarily anti-Christian, or at least anti-Jesus, um, as much as he's, it seems like he's just wanting to evaluate things. He's trying to, to analyze things. He he has this picture of the world from ancient Greece that you talked about, the, you know, the Homeric virtues, and he sees that being ha- having been lost in our society, and well, in his society, but he would say the same about ours. Um, and he yeah. and he's uh, 
he's going on to say, how did that happen? <laughs> I mean, what, yeah. where, 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 where did we make the shift? And, and then the next step of, was this a good shift to happen? Yeah. A, lo- a lot of the things too, that, that Nietzsche criticizes, he, he was, I, I need to find where, where I've, where I've read about this, but I think he was, he was understood. He was known to be a very kind person and very compassionate. And so, uh, well, the idea. Well, can can you speak to the event that that broke him, uh, that where he went insane? Yeah, I, I, th- I think that shows a lot of of Nietzsche's character. Yeah, and it's and, and it's not entirely clear whether this actually happened, though it's largely believed to have actually happened. Um, uh, in in uh, on January third, eighteen eighty nine, Nietzsche saw a man uh, in Turin who was beating a horse. And uh, apparently, perhaps brutally, and Nietzsche went and threw his arms around the horse to protect the horse. And then after that collapsed and had very little lucidity after that for the rest of his life. And this this reflects a story, a nightmare in a Dostoevsky book uh, where a guy sees a horse just being beat and beat and beat. And Nietzsche was Nietzsche was tremendously. In fact, his the one of the people there, there are basically two people that Nietzsche admired and never criticized only admired. And that is Montaigne, uh, who as a medieval, a medieval writer, he's the origin. Uh, he, he, he's, he's the one who created the essay form and Montaigne's essays are magnificent. I recommend them to anybody. Uh, and Dostoevsky, uh, Nietzsche says Dostoevsky is the only psychologist. That's how he refers to him. Only psychologist. I think that's how he said to him, who, from whom I can still learn. Because Dostoevsky, who is a Christian, had such a depth of insight into the human human psyche that Nietzsche believed that all these other people are missing it. So when he criticizes in this preface that we knowers are unknown to ourselves, he de- he wouldn't say that about Dostoevsky. Uh, he believed that Dostoevsky really understood what was going. Now Dostoevsky's picture of humanity is pretty dark, mm-hmm. and Dostoevsky is a Christian, so. Uh, Nietzsche, in many ways, was fighting against what he would consider weaknesses in himself, and he was doing it because he had suffered so much that his weaknesses were laid bare. I think that's one way we could look at it. He was also—I mean, he was. There's no question; the man was brilliant. So, a couple of questions I want to ask about the 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 preface. You know, we we talk about these values. You talked about you mentioned the Homeric values, and the uh, you mentioned compassion. And kind of how did, how did compassion become a good thing? And um, what Nietzsche is doing is he's at some level trying to evaluate the values. Now, this, this is always a tricky idea because in our modern mindset, when we talk about values, there's an element of them being subjective about them not having a... Uh, not not having anything that you can really value, you know, evaluate because it, it's it's really just what everyone thinks. Um, what what does it mean to evaluate values, at least in the way that Nietzsche is doing it, and um, what what might that mean for us today? Yeah, well, there's there's two elements that Nietzsche is really doing when he's evaluating. One of them, he's he's trying to see, he's obviously trying to see where they came from, right? And we'll get to this in the next book. I want to talk about the, the sorry the first essay the next podcast when he talks about uh, 
if humanity did indeed come from natural, natural selection, materialistic or atheistic evolution, then our very existence and our development is based upon violence and violation. If that is the case, where does compassion come from? And what role does it play in beings? And I, I always I like to tell this to my students who are very high-minded, uh, moralistic types of people who know better than any people who came before them, that they exist because they've been the best at killing and violating other things. They're at the end of a long line of murderers and violators. Because that's what natural selection is, right? The reason the Neanderthals don't exist anymore is because we're better at killing and killing, stealing, and consuming than they were. That's it. And so, uh, where did these where did these values come from? So that's part of the evaluation of it. Is you want to see what the root of it is to to understand what something really is. You want to see its root or its ground. But the other element is what benefit is it providing to us? Or maybe we should just, instead of saying benefit, say, what does this value actually do to us? And it might seem evident that things like compassion and mercy, and, and really compassion is really one of, his, one of his primary focuses, that compassion is a good thing. But, and I mentioned this in, in the, the, in the talk about it, the, the German word for this is mitleid, which can be translated compassion or pity. And it really just means to suffer with someone to, sh to, to participate in their sufferings or to suffer with them, which that means that having compassion is just spreading suffering. And given that suffering weakens us, it's spreading weakness. And, and I, we can probably talk about this more in the next time, next section, but you realize that, and this works out sort of practically too, there's a certain point where having compassion on someone can trap them in their weakness. It can, it can make it, and I know this from personal experience, I don't want to get TMI a little bit too much here, but I think in my life, I really needed more people who were like coaches who recognize a weakness and help you get out of it by calling you out of it. than people patting me on the head and saying, oh, it's so hard, isn't it? Yeah, that's so hard. That kind of compassion that almost praises me for suffering can addict me, can make me addicted to my suffering. Does that make sense? Yeah. I, you know, I think the, there's a, um, I mean, we'll, Nietzsche talks about this, in, you know, about comes back to compassion throughout the, the essay. So we'll, we'll dive into it more, but there's an element of being compassionate with, you know, entering into someone's suffering to help bring them out of suffering. And then an element of compassion where you can, enter into someone or where you can appear to enter into someone's suffering to keep them in their suffering. Yeah. And the question for Nietzsche, or maybe, I mean, I don't know if he doesn't, he doesn't really ask this question directly, but the question that we should be reflecting on as we move through this is, does that former version of, of compassion actually exist? That is the kind of compassion that enters into someone's suffering and helps bring them out. Is there such thing as a kind of selfless or self-giving compassion or is there only 
or primarily this kind of compassion that is destructive. And in order to understand that, we need to kind of see where compassion comes from. Now, again, there's some qualifiers here, and maybe we can end with this because we're starting to get kind of long here, but uh, Nietzsche is looking at this from an atheist standpoint. He's not, and he's going to give explanations as to how he came up with the idea of God in the second essay. Uh, he's going to, he's going to give those kinds of arguments, but he's just assuming that, that he's just assuming atheism. He's assuming evolution, natural selection, atheism. And from that, he's trying to understand these sorts of things. And that's part of what's so compelling about Nietzsche. And I, maybe I can end with this. Nietzsche is fascinating because he's one of the few atheists who follows atheism to its logical conclusion boldly goes where no atheist has gone before, you might say. And still, none will go there. Uh, it, it seems like. But I mean, maybe he was wrong, though. So, but that's something that's something to think about as a reader. That's a, that's a reason to read him as well. So one more question before we wrap this up. If our listeners are wanting to get a copy of The Genealogy of Morals and try to follow along with it, um, do you have a translation that you recommend? Well, uh, generally what I recommend is the uh, the cheapest translation. But uh, there's not any particular I don't it's it's not it's not super important that you get a really top-notch translation, but I actually have access to the penguin to the penguin version, uh, but the one I have uh, which I think is probably the best is the Cambridge Texts in the History of Political Thought. It's translated by Carol Diet, Dita, and uh, and it's it's a blue book, uh, but you, it's the Cambridge text in the history of political thought is is a really good it's a it's a nice uh, critical translation, uh, but really most of the I've 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 looked at several and they all work, they, you know, so uh, if you translate it yourself, good luck. So, <laughs> but I would recommend this one. It's a nice critical edition, but it's probably a little more expensive. Okay. Well, that's our first episode back from the our long layoff. Um, you've you've been listening to wandering towards wisdom. We we've decided to go with the A and uh, to eliminate some confusion. Uh, although yes. although the wandering will still be there, um, the the we feel that we kind of meander about a bit more than just you know actually wander. And, but we hope that you'll join us on these wanderings. Um, we're going to be digging more into to the philosophical texts to try and get at what what the philo- different philosophers are telling us, um, some things that they get right, some things that they don't. Um, but we hope that it's all leading to wisdom. So uh, we thank you for joining us. This is Joel. And this is Travis. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.